Welcome to Autobiology Bits After Dark. That's right, it's lucky episode number 13 where we're going to talk about getting lucky. That's right, it's going to be Valentine's Day this weekend and I thought maybe you might enjoy a little fun biology about getting lucky. Yep, so this is going to be a pretty adult episode. Lock up your kids, put them away, whatever you can do to get them out of the room. Go in your car, drive around, have fun, go for a walk, you know. (laughs) But whatever you do, put the kids away. All right, stay tuned. Welcome to Autobiology Bits with Jennifer Littlefleck. The podcast where you can hear real-life biology stories from a quirky maven to help you become an expert on your own biology. If high school biology had been as interesting as this podcast, you might have become a doctor. Introducing autobiologist Jennifer Littleflat. All right, here we go. This is my very first explicit episode. Um, Once again, I'm just going to remind you, yep, we are talking about sex today. So please uh, make sure that there are not little ears around. All right, so yeah, Valentine's Day coming up in a couple of days. I'm sure many of you are thinking about the possibility of getting lucky. So let's talk about it. And one of the first questions that people typically have is, you know, all right, how can I set the mood? You know, do aphrodisiacs really work? Like, for example, do oysters really make you horny? And, well, there's actually a lot of different foods that are thought to be aphrodisiacs. And while there's no science to really prove that any of them work, there are some theories on oysters. And the reason is, is because they're full of vitamins and minerals and especially zinc. Yeah, that's right. Zinc controls progesterone levels, which have a very positive effect on the libido. That's right, gentlemen. Progesterone is known as the happy hormone in women. Yep. And other foods uh, that are thought to get your mojo working include chocolate, strawberries, champagne. Yep. So all those little cheats that you've seen in movies about setting the mood, well, they're kind of right. So go ahead, get the oysters, chocolate, strawberries, and champagne ready to go. And while I wouldn't recommend them all together, (laughs) maybe spread them throughout the evening. All right, ladies. So there you are at dinner and you're looking across the table and you notice his hands and you think to yourself, Hmm, I wonder big hands, big feet. Are the old wives tales really true? I mean, in Spain, Spaniards believe that the distance measured from either side of your nose across the tip and to the other side, also hinted at the size of a man's penis. But unfortunately, there's no evidence that hand size, foot size, nose size um, gives any kind of accurate claim to a man's penis size, unfortunately. Now, as for other size issues, a small penis does actually expand more than a big one during erection. So it may start out small, but you know, it might win the race. I'm just saying. And here's the thing. Since a woman's sexually sensitive parts are in and around the first outer third of her vagina, 
big penis not necessarily needed to satisfy us. So yeah, size actually really doesn't matter, ladies. And we're going to talk a little bit more about why that is in a sec. So... Things are, you know, progressing. They're going well. And, you know, men, you notice that mm, your lady friend has some erect nipples. And why is that? Well, there are small muscle cells arranged cylindrically within the nipple. And they're the ones that are responsible for the nipple becoming erect. And it is stimulated by the central nervous system due to two things. Cold temperatures and sexual arousal. But you probably knew that, right? So the nipples get a little more erect, right? But then men are also thinking about something else. <sighs> what causes shrinkage? We do not want shrinkage. <laughs> so let's talk about that. First, let's talk about what defines super shrinkage. Well, there is a medical condition known as having a micropenis. Yes, it is true. And this is defined when a penis whose length, quote unquote, at rest, when it's stretched to its fullest extent, is more than two and a half standard deviations below the average size for his age group. Okay, so this is like an age group thing. Now, unfortunately, you know, no man actually wants to have the perception of a micropenis, but it does happen to some men. But like I said, those penises tend to expand more than normal penises do when the time is right. So what are the things that can cause shrinkage to make you look like you have a micropenis, even though you don't? Men, you probably already know this, but things like cold air, cold water, Fear, anger, and even anxiety can cause not only the penis, but the scrotum and the tes testicles to be pulled up closer into the body and thereby shortening everything to micropenis lengths. Yes, it can happen to any man. So cut your guys some slack, ladies. You know, if it's uh, you're taking a nice, you know, snowy horse-drawn carriage ride, you know, through the, through the streets. Uh, yeah, don't judge them. Now, warm conditions, on the other hand, too, cause the opposite effect. It causes the penis to lengthen. And so that brings us to the question of, you know, what is the average size of a penis? Well, in 1948, the Kinzer Report <laughs> actually did a study and said, they, at the time, definitively that the average length of 6.2 inches, uh, the average length was shown to be 6.2 inches, give or take 0.77 inches. In 1996, however, that was updated to an average length of 5.1 inches. And then since then, there's been a whole bunch of other studies, and basically they averaged out to about 5.7 inches. And the reality is, is there's no average length people. <laughs> it's whatever it needs to be, you know, for your guy to get the job done. And it seems to range between five and 6.2 inches, give or take. All right. So now where things are really heating up and, you know, we've passed the shrinkage issue and now we're looking at performance issues, right? So 
how can everybody be pleased? (laughs) And that raises the question, is there really a G-spot? I'm many, many years the G-spot eluded scientists and researchers. We kind of knew something that was going on there, but, you know, it was hard to quantify until there was a paper from out of Cairo University called the Electrovaginogram Study. Yep. It looked at the vaginal electrical activity and its role in the act of sex and sexual disorders. And they investigated the hypothesis that the vagina actually generates electrical waves, which affect contraction during penile thrusting. Doesn't that sound super sexy? (laughs) Uh, Could you imagine being the one that's doing this study? How did they even do that? It doesn't sound very comfortable. Well, anyway, they did find that they could record electric waves from the vagina And what they kind of postulated was happening was similar to the heart. There was actually a vaginal pacemaker uh, that seemed to be this representative G-spot, which, you know, proved to be a very small area, but of an intense erotic sensitivity in the vagina. So where can you find it? How can you reach this, you know, elusive spot? I mean... It's a, it is a relatively small area, but it's located on the upper wall of the vagina towards the belly, about, you know, two to three inches from the vaginal opening. Um, and, and like you said, I said earlier, it is on the, um, on the wall, but it does swell during sexual stimulation. So it does become easier to find. Um, now there's a lot of different testimonials from women about the best way for a man to reach that. And some say, you know, being on top works best. Others swear by rear entry is the best way. Um, And some women say that because of its location, because it's on the outer portion of the vagina, that a shorter, smaller penis is actually more effective at reaching the G-spot. Now, a good clue to its location for some women who... Maybe this still eludes you, ladies, and you you haven't had the big O yet. Um, Some women feel a sudden urge to urinate when their G-spot is touched. And and really, that's not surprising because the G-spot is located very near the urethra in women. All right, so you're wondering, men, about the G-spot. Now, women, you're wondering, am I tight enough, right? (laughs) We've all wondered that. And uh, so the question is, is, can you tighten that up? And the answer is, oh, yeah, we can do Kegels. Now, for those of you who don't know what Kegel exercises are, they were originally developed as a method of controlling incontinence in women following childbirth. So basically that means that um, after women have children, there is a very, very high likelihood, myself included, that you just pee like unwillingly out of nowhere after you have kids because the pelvic floor muscles just seem to go kaputs and it really sucks and it's super annoying. And so they developed these Kegel exercises to strengthen the vagina. And what they found was that it helped out with other things. Yep. The other benefits were that it was easier for 
women to reach orgasm. It made their orgasm stronger and made the vagina overall more sensitive. Now, the problem with Kegels is they suck. Nobody likes doing Kegels, okay? Now, now, fortunately for us, living in the year 2021, we have another option. Yes, we do. Thanks to my friend, I hope she doesn't mind me mentioning her name on this podcast, my friend, Dr. Jen Haley, she introduced me to the M-Cella device, which is at a lot of um, like medical spas, places like that. And it is like doing, oh, I can't remember the number. I just talked about this on another podcast, like 10,000 Kegels in like 20 minutes or something. It's insane. It's a device that stimulates the pelvic floor muscles. And all you have to do is sit there and it sort of looks like you're sitting on a toilet. But um, but yeah, you just sit there and it does all the work for you. And the testimonials that you can read from women online are just like through the roof, like um, honestly, like life changing for for these women. So definitely check that out if you hate doing Kegels and you need to, you know, strengthen up down there, tighten up, whatever. All right, moving right along. Now we come to the circumcision question. What is more fun? Circumcised or uncircumcised? All right, so here's the thing. Tons and tons of studies. This is like nature nurture question which i have a definitive answer to that one but uh you know it just depends on what your preferences really uh no scientific or <laughs> non-scientific uh, conclusion to this answer it's really just preference people so try it out see what you like see what your your preference is um I can say that uh, there are some interesting circumcision facts out there, uh, like a the 12th century physician and rabbi, his name was Mo- Moses Maimonides. Anyway, he advocated for male circumcision because he thought that it would curb a man's sexual appetite and make him more of a gentleman. Now, male circumcision was actually introduced into English-speaking countries in the late 1800s, again, as a method of treating and preventing masturbation. Man, people were really concerned about masturbation a long time ago. Unfortunate. So, yeah, so that's how that all came about. And now male circumcision is the most commonly performed surgery in the United States, and it removes 33 to 50% of the penile skin, as well as nearly all of the penile fine touch neuroreceptors. So that's also unfortunate. So there you go. Um, circumcision, it's, it's a really a preference thing. It's up to you. All right. Moving right along. So yeah, so you're in the thick of things and oh, it's just going really well and, and maybe you get a little rambunctious and, you know, maybe both of you are wondering, can we get a little too rambunctious? Is it true that you can break a penis? Well, unfortunately, the answer to that is yes. 
while there is no bone in your penis, you can still rupture it. And that's technically referred to as a penile fracture. And this typically happens when there's like sudden trauma or bending of the penis while it's in a fully erect state because it breaks this thick fibrous coat surrounding what's called the um, corpora cavernosum tissue, cavernosum tissue, and that's the tissue that produces an erection. And again, this most frequently happens during sex. So here's the important part about the answer to this question is this injury is actually an emergency and it requires surgery to prevent further sexual dysfunction, um, you know, in the future. So, yeah. So if that happens, go to the emergency room, no matter how embarrassed you are, just get there, get it taken care of. All right. So the evening went well, you end up being breakfast partners and in the morning ladies you notice that uh, he is really happy to see you laying there next to him and yes we are talking about the morning wood so why do men get morning wood well typically these erections are experienced in the REM sleep cycle Okay, you have several sleep cycles throughout the night you know first you go into deep sleep and then you kind of have this period of light sleep and then towards the end of the night or early morning hours is typically when you get your REM sleep. And so since erections tend to happen during REM sleep, they are still there when y'all wake up in the morning. And, you know, you do know that, you know, men can have spontaneous erections at other times too. There's no scientific reason why this happens, um, but there is extensive literature on the subject if you are so inclined to learn more. Okay, gents, ladies, I hope that you enjoyed the Autobiology After Dark series for episode Lucky 13. Have a wonderful Valentine's weekend, and here's to getting lucky. Do you have an autobiology question for Jennifer? Ask it at autobiology.net or Instagram at autobiology with Jennifer. And keep listening to see if your question has been featured. And remember, anyone can be an autobiologist. This podcast is for information purposes only. Any of the discussions or products held herein are not in any way offered as prescription, diagnosis, nor treatment for any disease, illness, infirmity, or physical condition. Any form of self-treatment or alternative health program necessarily must involve an individual's acceptance of some risk, and no one should assume otherwise. Persons needing medical care should obtain it from a physician. Consult your doctor before making any health decision. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. The podcast host may have have direct or indirect financial gains from products discussed on this podcast.